0: Pediatric Commuters. This is the first episode of a series that will focus less on medical education and more on finding inspirational pediatricians. I feel that the morale amongst trainees is really suffering and I truly believe that showing how amazing our work can be might give us the tiny boost that we need on our way to work. I'll make sure that I ask everyone about work-life balance and the ways in which they relax after a busy day. I really hope you enjoy it and I cannot wait to read your feedback. Our first guest is Dr. Lucy Mackay, a young doctor and CEO of Medics for Rare Diseases. Please enjoy and have a safe commute. I have to mention that this podcast expresses the views of the host and guests, and that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. The podcast is not sponsored by any drug or device companies. Medics for Rare Diseases is grateful to be sponsored by a number of companies in 2020. These companies have no editorial control over the contents or events. Medics for Rare Diseases works independently from these companies and does not endorse any products. Have a safe commute! Hello, paediatric commuters. Welcome to this episode. Our guest today is Lucy Mackay. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for being our guest today. Hi, Alex. Good to see you. How are you?
1: I'm very good, thank you. How are you?
0: Well, I just spilled a lot of coffee on me, so not that great, but I smell lovely.
1: Yeah, and it was due to a cute pug. It so was. we will forgive
0: everyone. <laughs> Super. So I should tell you about Lucet. I've met her in 2014 when I was an ST1 in Peds and Lucy was an F1 in Peds in Yorkshire. Long time no see. I know.
1: It feels like like,
0: two minutes ago. I remember when we were doing blood gases in one of the first cubicles.
1: That's so right, yeah. (laughs) You look exactly the same. No,
0: I'm not blonde anymore. (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) apart from that. No,
0: that's correct. (laughs) Right. What have you been up to in the past Five, six years what haven't i been up to <laughs> no so
1: i finished my f2 training uh, f1 and f2 training and did some um fy3 also at harriga on peds and my plan had been to return to peds later on because i was actually moving out to switzerland with my husband but what I've ended up doing instead is working full-time for a charity that I founded and set up which was a very gradual process. I um, started it, started doing things as a student and now I'm the CEO of a charity called Medics for Rare Diseases. And this came about because my eldest brother had a rare disease and I, at university, had friends who helped me shine a spotlight on some rare diseases, and it just went from there.
0: So you've been doing this for a long time. Did you put this on hold while you were an F one, F two, and then an F three?
1: Yes, I mean, incompatible, isn't it? You can't do F. You can't really do F one and F two and um, keep. An orga- a separate organisation going or it's very difficult too when you're working full time. So at that point, the organisation was cu- called Students for Rare Diseases and it was sort of an informal organisation, sort of kept afloat by other charities and we had a lot of voluntary help from different people. What we, have man- what we did manage to sustain during that time were two of our annual symposiums, which I'll get back to you later, So we did manage to continue doing those, but it had to take a back seat until I became an FY3 and could choose how much time I spent on it. And at that point, the more I invested in this, the bigger it got. And it just, something that I thought was just sort of a extracurricular activity before just got bigger and bigger.
0: Your approach to training or to medicine wasn't the straightforward, I finished med school, now I'm an F1, F2... I started my specialty training, I'll be a consultant soon. What are your thoughts on this less than straightforward approach to training? Do you feel it's it's worth doing something else on the side or taking out of program years or do you think it's it's a waste of time?
1: It, I th- I think it's very it really depends on your situation. First of all, I came to it as a graduate entry um as a graduate anyway so I was already older and I did so I did a four-year course at Barts and then I went up to Yorkshire to do my foundation years and I did my FY3 mostly as a take a breather but I didn't I always planned to go back into medicine at the point when I left I, I even and the only FY3 I know who went through the full portfolio play, um, process and got, uh, uh, got it all signed off officially to, so that I had a very clear entry back into medicine. And I, I talked about at length with the, um, the revalidation officer and everything about how I could prepare to come back into medicine because we were moving to Geneva for two years so it is it's possible and everything basically came down to as long as you are look like you're doing full planning and this isn't just you've decided to take a jaunt and you're not sure and you haven't committed to anything then everyone was very positive about yes this you know do this but just make sure you've had full planning in when you do your personal development plan and everything when I left the FY3, when I left FY as, as an FY3, that's hard because nobody owns you, no specialty owns you, foundation programme doesn't own you, but it's definitely possible to get back in. I recently went on a refresher course for re-entry back into medicine and there were other people who were also going back into medicine. I, as a matter of fact, am not at the moment because what happened for me instead was I've ended up, because I've been working for Medics for Rare Diseases and it needs me and it's making headway and it and I feel like I'm making more of a difference doing that than I would be if I did go back into medicine at this point it's and it's not a, a never thing but for now this is where my passion lies so I think it depends what calls you and where you where you feel that your resources are going to be best used. And that's not just your medical degree, it's everything that has shaped your life. Well, long before I did four years of medical training, I was part of a rare disease family. My eldest brother died of a rare disease called MPS two before I was born, and my mum and dad and other volunteers started a family contact group, which has grown and grown and is now the wonderful MPS Society without which treatment is may not have ever become available because they supported research so much. So I actually did 25 years of of that experience and four years of medical school. And what I find is uh, the work that I'm doing now uses every everything I have worked towards is used by this. And I think that's what makes me say, yes, if there's something out there that calls you more than just the standard you've done your a-levels you've gone to medical school you've done your foundation program now you're on pediatric training i think the free fall is scary but it's worth it if you're doing something that you're passionate about and interested in
0: that's a lot of insight yeah sorry a bit long
1: (laughs) you can edit all of that no i
0: i i think it gives trainees a lot of insight of how they should approach out of program but I think we shouldn't blame trainees for sometimes just wanting to get through or just wanting six months out to do traveling or to do a cooking class or to do whatever they want to do because sometimes you just need that (laughs) without having a backup plan (laughs) but you need it and your
1: patients need it they need it from you because you can't unsee the things you see when you get get other experiences. It's hugely important to see how other people function. I mean, you know, it's funny. Like leaving the leaving the NHS is almost you you forget there's this whole world that doesn't run on rotors and th- that you can do things for joy outside of your work because you've got enough time to do it and what you then find and who you then speak to and who they know because you've had enough time to invest in your in whatever you've become interested in and that will only ever help you deal with people and bring more humanity back to the to the rather difficult
0: um job, job. especially yeah,
1: especially <laughs> especially peds yeah
0: Right let's get into the important things. What is Medics for Rare Disease? I think we got a bit of a flavour from what Mm. you told us earlier but what exactly do you do? Okay so the official line is that Medics for Rare
1: Disease is driving an attitude change towards rare diseases in medicine, in the medical profession and this is because rare Can sometimes have a little bit of a stigma against the word because what does rare mean to you? It might mean, as a doctor, complex, um, you know, it might mean heart sink patient, you know, which we're, you know, you're not meant to say, but it's this kind of feeling of, will I be able to um, manage this? And I'm never going to see it, it's not going to be on an exam. And um, so these are potentially what it could mean, but actually. Rare diseases affect 3.5 million people in the UK, which is estimated by the charity Rare Disease UK. And new research by Orphanet looking at all of the rare diseases that they have listed, which uh, I think the estimate of how many rare diseases there are is 7,000 to 8,000 rare diseases. So there was a review of all the diseases listed on Orphanet and of those that had uh, age of onset available, 81% could present in childhood or only presented in childhood. So this is a significant portion of our population and for paediatrics it's really significant. Then on the other side of that is some really devastating statistics that Uh, Depending on which report you read, the average time to diagnosis can be four to six years, average time. Many rare disease patients I know will say I've never met anyone who's been diagnosed that fast. And in paediatrics, this can be devastating because 30% of people affected by a rare disease die before their fifth birthday so what medics for rare diseases is trying to do is ask doctors to dare to think rare we're not asking them to put a rare disease at the top of their differential diagnosis list when there's a more likely common disease as a diagnosis or even after that an atypical presentation of a common disease but we can't stop there we can't think oh it's so rare we'll never see it because it might be rare in a population but suddenly when you've got a certain presentation and other things have been ruled out, the, you're dwindling down the, the, the rarity of it being in that individual.
0: That's super interesting. I had a look on your website m4rd.org Correct. I read about this thing called rare disease 101 which is what you try to, which is your tool or your toolkit to help students or doctors. What exactly does Rare Disease 101 mean? Okay, so
1: what we're trying to do is make rare diseases more teachable and less scary or just... That feeling of there's way too much to learn, so I can't even get involved. And Rare Disease 101 is a lot of those statistics that I've just mentioned, because just to remind people that rare diseases are relevant to everyday clinical practice. Maybe not a single rare disease out of the 7,000 and 8,000, but you should be expecting to see patients with rare diseases when there's um, that population prevalence so that's one part of it then we get into how you can how you might have to reframe the patient doctor relationship when you are managing a patient with a rare disease because it's unlikely that there's going to be a doctor even in your hospital who is an expert in that rare disease unless you're at a tertiary center with a specialist centre for that specific rare disease, the pe- the person who's going to be an expert in that disease is the patient and their family, and how this how the expert patient and the doctor can work together so that they can so that the doctor can be an advocate for their patient, understanding the impact of rare diseases on patients. So it's not just it's not just the patient that's affected they their family might be carers there's increased prevalence of mental health problems because of rare diseases isolation and even increased incidents of things like divorce within families and on top of that access to treatment or access to research it's a com- it's just a complex area most rare diseases will affect multiple body systems so they might be seeing multiple specialists and there needs to be joined up care between these specialists. People go to many, many, many appointments and they spend, lose a lot of time from in work or they lose a lot of time in school and that leads to more isolation. So it's basically, it, it's not covering a specific rare disease but it's looking at the challenges faced by people with rare diseases. My team put together the information or the speakers but it's coming from the experts so those are GPs, paediatricians, patients, the patient's family, people in research and advocates and everyone is an expert in in this area, they all bring something different and so our annual symposium on the 19th of February is a really good example of this it's at the Royal Society of Medicine and it's held in collaboration with the medical genetics section there and we have different people from different areas of the rare disease community coming together with this to provide sort of a one-stop shop of how can you make a difference to your patient's life when they're living with a rare disease and empower yourself and equip yourself to be an advocate for your patient with a rare disease.
0: How useful Lucy would would you think this attending to this symposium would be for acute pediatricians, general pediatricians from DGHs that might have might not have a child with a rare disease in their um in their caseload. Would do you think it would be useful for them to attend to understand a bit more? Or do you think it's more geared towards tertiary specialists and so
1: on if anything it's not geared towards tertiary specialists it's geared towards those people because those are the doctors that need the support don't they they need to know where to turn when they have a patient where they think okay I I just don't know what's going on here but I've got a gut feeling and gut feeling is really important in well all of medicine isn't it but it's really important in this like it just doesn't add up so this i would say is really important for those because it's about where can you get help and how can you signpost for your patient and we ha- we there's a whole world out there of rare diseases community it is massive and there are so many places for support but if doctors don't know about those how can they access themselves and really importantly how can they signpost their patient to access them So that's why it's called, it's called The Unusual Suspects, Rare Diseases in Everyday Medicine. And it's, like I say, it's not about a single rare disease, it's about looking at them in totality and coming away equipped and empowered
0: to look after your patient. So this is on the 19th of February, so hopefully you will get um, enough time to book this yes are you attending other events in the near future that our listeners could join you yeah well I'd always
1: give a shout out everyone should um, subscribe to hearing from news from the paediatric the British paediatric surveillance unit who do great work for the rare disease field and uh, they do a tea party once a year but this year uh, medics for rare diseases and the BPSU and some other charities uh, brilliant charities in the rare disease community are uh, running a rare disease session at the rcpch conference in liverpool our session is in the afternoon of the wednesday which is the 29th and it's not for super specialists it's for the everyday pediatrician i'll be there so it would be great to meet anyone who wants to come along And I'd also say that there are so many opportunities for doctors who want to do something a bit different um, in rare diseases. So, for example, Medics for Rare Diseases last year got together with the Childhood Tumor Trust, and they uh, are a support group for neurofibromatosis type 1. And we advertised and helped set up a bursary to send two doctors to the international conference in San Francisco so they could go learn all there was to learn at the conference come back and report to the board and then be on the medical advisory committee for this brilliant charity and as well as those two doctors who went to San Francisco other doctors were selected to be on that medical advisory board so that's just an example of sometimes I feel like I'm a matchmaker there's all of these opportunities for for doctors and medical students out there in the area that I work but it's it feels like we're not getting them to 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 see them so we sometimes I just feel like I'm taking what's out there in the rare disease space and bringing it to the NHS space and putting it in front of the right people so that
0: they can be taken up well I think you're doing a great job <laughs> okay, hopefully <laughs> tell me Lucy how long did it take you to go from Not necessarily how long did it take you, but what were the steps that you had to go through to go from your dream, your passion, to the actual charity and working and earning money or maybe not earning money from this, but basically living your dream. So what were the practical steps?
1: Yeah, well, there were a lot of them. And I'd even say this, this was never my intention and it was never my, you know... It's a dream now, but it was never my dream. It, it's needed, and therefore it grows. I And I think that's what's happened. But So it started as a student extracurricular like society that my friends and I um, put together, and I think my friends were very kind to help me do that because I was obviously being driven by experience, family experience, personal experience, and they just went along with me. And then we did our first national symposium that was in 2013 and then we became a national organization because we what we were doing was being noticed by the rare disease community and then I did f1 and f2 so it was a bit difficult to work on and it's that was just one of those make or break moments and I suppose one of the crucial steps of this was that I did effort three so I had the physical that had the time to dedicate to this and then once I kept putting in time and passion it got bigger and we became a independent like a a registered company limited by guarantee so a charitable company in December 2017 and then became a charity in June 2019 and I'm, I'm the CEO I'm being paid and we've just had our recent round of funding. So on funding we take donations and then we also take sponsorship from companies that have an interest in rare disease. I think one of the crucial steps for me has been at the beginning I was reticent to tell people why I cared about rare diseases because it was personal and then the more I've done it the more I realised that the more personal you can get the better because who are what's the point in doing anything if it doesn't matter to you and I think in medicine this is always a debate isn't it like how how much of your personality and how much of your own experience should you bring to your clinical care
0: well my personal view is that a lot I (laughs) I think great doctors shine because they're themselves they're not just a a statue
1: (laughs) absolutely absolutely you and is you know people want to be treated by people and it's all and otherwise you're just cookie cutters aren't you you're just cookie cutter doctors who come out of the machine and it's amazing what patients will forgive you for if you if they feel like you're a, a, genu- a real person and then I think that's the same in what I'm doing I'm having to learn accounting I'm having to learn bits of like you know charitable law Um I all of these things I've recently found out that cash is king or as I like to say cash is queen and things that I definitely did not get taught at medical school and it's it's, so it's a constant learning curve but it is really it is really brilliant to be doing to be doing something different and learning a lot
0: tell me Lucy how does your typical work they look like M- make us all feel yeah, really know. bad Anyone who is feeling particularly angry,
1: please turn off the podcast now. (laughs) Um, I uh, live a little life, so it's not, you know, I'm the CEO of a charity that is small. So and I work three days in four is what I like to say. It's like the, you know how people want a day off, so they work five days in four.
0: It doesn't add up to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I work three days in four because my baby goes to nursery for a short day so it's like a school day Um, and I work from home. Uh, Sometimes I work from my husband's business or often I'm in Cambridge uh, because they've got a brilliant genome centre campus there or Birmingham is a good big centre for rare diseases, Manchester and London are places I'm often visiting. So I work from my uh, laptop and I speak to all sorts of people so at the moment I'm mostly organising the symposium but on a normal when on the normal days so on a Monday we do mystery disease Monday on Instagram where you can come on you can look at our story and say whether you've heard about the disease and then um, the patient group associated with it will have provided us facts so that we can just give some interesting facts about that disease. What's your Instagram handle? It's at medics for rare diseases.
0: Lovely, I'll follow that in a minute. Yeah,
1: we're also on uh, Twitter and Facebook, but I I love my, I love the Instagram. And uh, so that's on a Monday and phone calls. Like we do a lot of people with rare diseases engagement. Running events, working with other with other charities but also at the moment we're doing things like setting up a there's a GP trainee scheme that are running where one of the GPs has asked that we do their Wednesday teaching they get in guest speakers and we're hooking them up with a company called Mendelian who are using digital pattern matching on their software to go through GP records and hospital records to see if there's likely candidates for certain rare diseases. Things like that that we need to move forward, innovation has moved forward, there are diseases with, with commission services that you know if, you're, if you, you could blink and your training might go out of date because things are moving fast and then on top of that we've got genomics Um, becoming more and more mainstream and then we've got artificial intelligence changing how we might end up seeing the um, patient-doctor relationship and what does the doctor do when you've got systems that can help make the diagnosis for you where the doctor role might become just more about what we used to call soft skills. (laughs) So those are the kind of things that I uh,
0: work on. Lucy this sounds definitely more interesting than seeing the 100th bronchiolitis in an ED. Anyway. <laughs> but, no, that but someone,
1: that. <laughs> someone needs to see the someone 100th needs.
0: child with right. bronchiolitis in ED so I'm very grateful for you doing that. I know. Last question. I know it all sounds really idyllic but sometimes life can get too much even though you're working on a laptop. Mm. Um, I'm sure you have you, you struggle with some things. What, do you, what are your favourite things to do when, you, when life gets too much when it's too, too stressful? What do you do?
1: Yeah, on the struggling with some things, having come from quite a paternalistic or quite a dogmatic system to come, and like I said earlier, the freefall of being in charge of your own fate and how well your organisation does when it means so much to you can be both wonderful and terrible. I always just say that the highs are high and the lows are just, you know, they can be really scary. So, what do I do? At the moment, I do a lot of looking after my nephew because my uh, my sister-in-law is pregnant with twins. <laughs>
0: Sounds I a lot before work, <laughs> which,
1: which is fun. So we like, uh, so I guess the usual walks, books. I've got a baby and a house rabbit, and uh, I've just moved back from Switzerland. So the majority of what I've been doing is unpacking. But um, it's, well, I guess when it all becomes quite blurred, and
0: which is quite nice. So, yeah, chilling, really. Chilling sounds absolutely fine. Thank you so much, Lucy. It was absolutely great to see you again after five, six, seven, it's God so knows nice how many years. You. I will link all the appropriate websites and stuff for um, M4RD. Um, and I really hope you will book. Um, all these events and go and meet Lucy Um, she's super approachable so if you have an interest in this please feel free Mm. to contact her definitely and I
1: can I make a plug for someone else please we're not you know she's not paying me any money so it's completely legit Sarah Lippitt is a uh, a lady that I know who is who's just become a friend that it came out of rare disease a rare disease event she grew up for 11 years without a diagnosis for a chronic condition and she wrote a she's wrote or illustrated a graphic memoir about it called a puff of smoke and I was recently recently interviewed with her on women's hour about this and we did a longer extended interview about it and Alex you should get her on here but for any pediatrician out there or budding pediatrician out there this is her book isn't just about having a rare disease it's about what it's like to be a child and to be an adolescent and growing up in a healthcare system and the things that we need to remember about how delicate those times are which I'm sure you do and I know that you've got a lot going against you but it's just might be a beautiful reminder and it is a beautiful book she's speaking at our event if anyone is interested and i personally believe everyone should be interested in her but so she's called sarah Lippett. the book's a puff of smoke and if you're listening to this and you want a nice present for a pediatrician you know then it's it would be a good one
0: that sounds amazing i will link that yeah as well in the description box thank you lucy have a great thank day thank you so much to see you again. again yeah thank you bye bye Thank you for staying with us until the end. I'm looking forward to hear from you. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and let us know if you would like me to invite pediatricians that inspired you throughout your career. It might be because they are great researchers, they ran a marathon, or they managed to work as consultants and raise four children. If you enjoyed this episode, take a few minutes to rate us on your podcast app. Have a lovely day!